So one day, a young child named Thomas went to school all dressed up as Superman. Well, this caused a lot of commotion in the class. Unfortunately, many of the students in the class started making fun of this young child for his outfit. The teacher of the classroom asked the child, Thomas, why are you wearing this? You're not supposed to wear this to school. Thomas replied back, well, because my uncle is Superman. And the teacher responded by sarcastically saying, oh, okay. Then she pulled him aside, and Thomas ended up getting in trouble for making up stories. When Thomas's mother found out about the bullying and how the teacher treated it, her son, she made a call to her brother-in-law. Her brother-in-law was none other than Henry Cavill, the actor who recently played Superman in all those films. You know, Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, and Justice League. She asked if he had time that he could find in his busy schedule that he could take the youngster to school one day. Cavill happily obliged and walked with Thomas to his school in front of all his classmates. And the whole school saw this, including those who had teased him, and also including a very embarrassed teacher, too. You see, church, young Thomas claimed to know Superman. This is a claim that we can understandably see many young children with very vibrant imaginations also claiming. But the difference here is that the Superman here actually knew Thomas. Therefore, he was able to defend Thomas in front of the whole school. Cavill was an advocate for his nephew, Thomas. So today we will focus on the one true advocate that we have the one advocate who advocates for us in heaven. And this is where we will take our study today. So please turn your copies of God's Word to 1 John, and we will be starting chapter 2 and covering verses 1 through 6. Our message this morning is called Our Only Advocate. Now, before we get into the actual text we will be studying, I'll ask you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study your word, Lord, help us so that we can speak your truth. Help us so we can meditate on it all throughout the week. Help us to share that truth with others because we know that your words, your scriptures have power. And that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So Lord, use us to be your ambassadors. Help us and equip us so we can better serve you, Lord and understand the wonderful truths that are within this passage that we are going to study now. We love you, Heavenly Father, and we praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we are in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-6. through 6, And the passage reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 
whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. So let's take a look at our first point. That will be first one of our passage, and our first point is that he advocates for us. So again, verse 1 reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here, John is revealing his intention for this letter that he has written. He is saying that this is the purpose of his letter. That we are always to aim never to sin. That has to be our aim. And we also know from looking at the previous chapter that no one is sinless, though. We aim not to sin, but no one is sinless. And here he reminds us, though, that we are not in a hopeless situation. We have an advocate with the Father. And this is a wonderful reminder. Because that advocate is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Church, this truth that John is presenting is important for us to remember and keep on our minds all the time. Because Jesus is not just an advocate. He is the only real advocate for us. Many false religions try to add other advocates, but they are false. Mormon followers, they add Joseph Smith. Muslim followers, Add Muhammad, Catholic and Eastern Orthodox followers, and Mary, or the saints, or priests, or bishops, or popes, as if they could be our advocates. But none of those individuals will do, for all of them are sinners, too, and all of them need a Savior, too. We need a sinless advocate with the Father. Someone whom Satan cannot accuse of sin. So that is found only in our precious Jesus. Remember what the Word of God says in Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. She accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is constantly accusing us day and night to the Father. And because we are sinful, he has so many things that he can say against us. And this is a truth, whether you are a big sinner or a small sinner. In fact, even if one is considered righteous, Satan will continue to accuse you. Look with me at the events recorded in the book of Job. Look with me at Job 1, verses 9 through 10. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. See, Satan will find any reason that he can accuse us to God. And this is why we need Jesus and the promises found in Scripture. So may the words of Romans 8, verses 33 to 39 give us comfort. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage is to give us comfort that when we have a relationship with the Lord, a genuine relationship with Him, nothing can separate us. And that's why after his whole list that Paul gives of what can't separate us, to make sure he's got all his bases covered, he says, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from Christ. And that's why we do believe what it says when we say that once saved, always saved. The meaning of that is that when you have a genuine relationship with God, nothing can separate that. Nobody can pluck anything out of Christ's hand. The question is, do we have a real genuine relationship with him? And that's what John is exploring in this whole letter. Because that's essential to know. Because if we have an essential, a genuine relationship, then we have no fear of being separated from Christ. But if we don't have one, then we do have a problem, we do have a fear. You see, beloved, Jesus is both our sinless advocate and it is by his blood that we are washed and made brand new. And this takes us to our next point. Our second point is, he washes our sins. So verse 2 of our passage reads, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now the word propitiation is not commonly used in our daily conversations. However, Scripture does use it many times, so it's important for us to understand what it means. So propitiation, in other words, means appeasement, or satisfaction, or to conciliate, or to satisfy. So the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the holy demands of God the Father's wrath for the punishment of sin. You see, God the Father is holy. And the price of sin is death. And that wrath had to be appeased. It had to be satisfied. And it's only going to happen two ways. Either we're going to pay for our sins, that means we're going to have to spend an eternity in hell. Or if we trust in Christ, then his blood covers us because he already paid for it for us. Then. So that's important for us to remember. So Jesus propitiated or satisfied God the Father. Meaning Jesus is not only our only advocate, but he's our only mediator between us and the Father. So do not be deceived to think that you need any other mediators. 
again. Joseph Smith can't help anyone. Muhammad can't help anyone. Mary, the mother of Jesus, can't help anyone. John the Baptist, Peter the Apostle, can't help anyone. Because all of them are sinners too. None can satisfy the wrath of God. And it doesn't matter whether one, some of them are cult leaders and other, other ones were called blessed and considered righteous. Only Jesus' blood is enough to pay for all our sin debt. Now look at the second half of this verse. It said, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now some can misinterpret this, believing it to mean that Christ paid all the debt for every single individual. But there's a problem with that. See, when you believe in a certain doctrine, it's important to take that doctrine all the way to its very end and see what does it really mean. And when you believe in things like that, it can lead you into some dangerous theology. Because it can lead you into the error of believing in universalism. See, if you believe that every single individual's sins have been paid for, then there's nothing that God was going to hold against those people since it's already paid for. Okay? And therefore, people come to the erroneous belief that, well, everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what you do, everyone goes to heaven. And that's how we came with universalism. But as we know, that's heresy. See, when John says, for the sins of the whole world, he is using a generic term that would have been understood by those listeners and readers in the first century as referring to mankind in general. So, he's not referring to every single individual. The MacArthur Study Bible says it this way, Christ actually paid the penalty only for those who would repent and believe. A number of scriptures indicate that Christ died for the world. Most of the world will be internally condemned to hell to pay for their own sins, so they could not have been paid for by Christ. The passages which speak of Christ dying for the whole world must be understood to refer to mankind in general. The word world indicates the sphere, the beings toward whom God seeks reconciliation and has provided propitiation. God has mitigated his wrath on sinners temporarily by letting them live and enjoy earthly life. In that sense, Christ has provided a brief temporal propitiation for the whole world, but he actually satisfied fully the wrath of God eternally only for the elect who believe. Christ's death in itself had unlimited and infinite value because he is holy God. Thus, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the penalty for all the sins of all whom God brings to faith. But the actual satisfaction and atonement was made only for those who believe. The pardon for sin is offered to the whole world, but received only by those who believe. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus makes it very clear, I lay down my life for my sheep. But he makes it very clear that he's laying his life down for his sheep. So for those who are reconciled with God, they are known by their obedience to God. And this takes us to our next point, keeping his command. Verse 3 from our passage says, 
And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You see, God is merciful. It is not complete, it's not a complete mystery for us to know if we are saved or not. We don't have to wait until judgment day to see did God outweigh our good and bad to see if we'll make it to heaven. That's what a lot of other religions are. They're works-based. And they're trying to see, I wonder how God's going to evaluate my life. That's not the God of the Bible. Because we are not saved by our own merits. We have another need that God reveals to us our standing to Him. Because we are saved by what Christ did on the cross. So we know that we are saved by grace through faith, as it says all throughout Scripture. How do we know that we are saved? How do we know that that grace has come to us? That answer is found in how we live our lives after we claim to be saved. After God regenerates us and opens our minds to accept His truth, we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we are justified and in right standing with Him. We experience a rebirth. We become a brand new creation. And as a brand new creation, we do something that is impossible to do without the Holy Spirit. We keep God's commands. We obey the teachings found in scriptures. Not perfectly, but we make a practice of obeying God instead of what we used to do, make a practice of sinning. The obedience does not save us, but it is a byproduct of having a renewed mind. So I pray that this truth either assures you of your genuine faith in our Lord and Savior, or it can fix you to repent and believe in the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ. But you may be wondering, what about those who say they are born again, but they live worldly lives? What about those who claim to be backsliding? Aren't they saved? No matter what they do? Well, John answers those questions in the upcoming verses, clarifying what he had previously said earlier. And this takes us to our next point, deceiving oneself. Verse 4 reads, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Claiming to know Jesus is not the same as Jesus saying that he knows you. Okay, because this is, when Jesus says he knows you, he's not talking about an intellectual knowledge if he knows of your existence. God knows everything. But he's using the word know here to represent a relationship. You know, when you read about an Adam and Eve that shows an intimate relationship. And God is saying, when Jesus is saying to others, I don't know you, he's saying, I don't have a relationship with you. You may claim to know me, but I don't know you. And this is important for us to keep in mind because Jesus warns us about this in Matthew 7, verse 13 to 23. The passage goes, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly 
or ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, of grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs or thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You see what Christ is saying here? The fruit that we produce represents what's in our heart. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. By far the most terrifying passage in Scripture. Beloved, see the end of that passage crying out to Jesus and simply calling him Lord will not save you. Saying that you even believe in the Bible, that you believe it's truth, will not save you. Listing yourself as a Christian on your Facebook profile page will not save you. Having perfect attendance at church and even inviting friends to church will not save you. Walking down the aisle and saying the sinner's prayer will not save you. Uttering prophecies and casting out demons will not save you. For all these things can be done with a stone heart. You can do all these things and still be a worker of lawlessness. So in addition to confessing Jesus as Lord with your mouth, you have to surrender to him in your heart. That's important. And that's why I love this passage above all other passages in Scripture, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus desires both your mind and your heart. You are either all in, or you are all out of hope. Partial credit is not good enough. Getting it halfway right is not good enough. You are either all in for Jesus, or you are a rebel and an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. It's only black and white. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then I can promise you on the authority of scriptures that you are making a practice of keeping this commands. And likewise, for those of you who claim to follow Jesus, yet disregard his command, then again, by the authority of scripture, I can say that you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. So I beg you now, reconsider your life. Reconsider your eternity. Ask God to renew your heart. 
Ask God to open your eyes so you can see the truth. And He will change you. That's a promise in Scripture too. As Jesus Himself said in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So when God renews your mind, you can't help it but to walk like Christ and be like Christ. So let's look at our final point. Walking like Him. So verses 5 and 6 of our passage reads, The one who keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. For those that keep God's commandments, for those who have a genuine relationship with Him, the love of God is perfected. Or another word to describe this is completed. So the love of God is completed in that person. God gives general grace to all of His creation. But for those who are His own, he gives them saving grace. And God has a general love for all his creation. But for those who are his own, his love for them is a complete and perfect love. And for those individuals whom scripture calls the believers, followers of Christ, Christians, the elect, for his sheep, they are marked by being those who walk in the same way as their master. So if you say you follow Christ, then you will act like Christ. If you are born again, you will talk like Christ. If you are born again, you will think like Christ. If you are born again, you will love like Christ. If you are born again, you will walk like Christ. It only makes perfect sense, church. See a common expression go? It looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck. So likewise, if a person talks like a Christian, thinks like a Christian, acts like a Christian, loves like a Christian, well, then he's probably a Christian. But the negative of that statement is just as true. If the person doesn't think like a Christian, doesn't like like a Christian, doesn't live like a Christian, doesn't act like a Christian, then he's probably, he or she's probably not a Christian. Beloved, how we live our lives really reflects who our master is. Others can see this as well, and they are not being judgmental by pointing out the very obvious. Just look at your life and see the truth. What do your actions say about you? Remember what James says in James 2, verses 12 to 26. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumph over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You see, James is not putting faith and works against each other here. He's basically saying something. You can't claim to have faith and then also claim to not have good works. That's not possible. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food daily, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead means it's non-existent, and you don't have faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, Jim is not separating, he's simply saying something very obvious. What we do shows people the faith that we have. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not just about an intellectual knowledge, church. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, we are, we are justified and saved by grace through faith. But what James is saying here is to say that you have faith, but you don't produce any works. That is not real faith. That's a fake faith. And that faith can't save. Any genuine faith that we have produces good works. And that's how we can all see whether a person's a believer or not. It's not supposed to be a mystery. In fact, when you're ministering to other people, you need to know, does this person seem like a believer or not? You're not judging them, but it's important. So we know how to minister to them. If you have genuine saving faith, then you will produce genuine good works. But to claim to have faith and live wickedly is foolish as a lie. Obedience is always part of a believer's life. So as this message comes to a close, I want to share this. William Kyle Carpenter is the youngest living soldier to ever receive the Medal of Honor. Carpenter shielded his friend from a hand grenade that was thrown onto the rooftop they were based on in November of 2010. Both men survived, thanks to Kyle. Only 21 years old at the time, he, without a second, threw his body onto a live grenade, resulting in him losing most of his teeth, his right eye, shattering his jaw, and breaking his arm in a number of places. Here is an excerpt from his Medal of Honor citation. Lance Corporal <clears throat> Carpenter and fellow Marine were manning a roof security position on the perimeter of Patrol Base Dakota when the enemy initiated a daylight attack of hand grenades, one of which landed inside the sandbag position. Without hesitation and with complete disregard for his own safety, Lance Corporal Carpenter moved toward the grenade in an attempt to shield his fellow Marine from the deadly blast. When the grenade detonated, his body absorbed the blunt of the blast, severely wounding him, but saving the life of his fellow Marine. 
by his undaunted courage, bold fighting spirit, unwavering devotion to duty in the face of almost certain death, Lance Corporal Carpenter reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and the United States Naval Service. Loved. Remember, we were once in a vulnerable position too. With a grenade called God's Wrath, right about to explode and condemn you to eternity in hell. But Jesus stepped in and he took on the full wrath of God. And because of his sacrifice, because it was accepted by the Father, and that death couldn't defeat him, we now have a great hope that if we surrender our lives to Christ, we will have a relationship with him. So if you are evaluating your life right now, and you realize that you are not in right standing with God, and today is the day to turn to Him. Do not wait. Your next breath is not guaranteed. Turn to Jesus and live. Evaluate your life based on what it says in 1 John. And ask yourself, based on how I live my life, who does it show my master is? And if it's anything other than Jesus, then cry out to God and ask him, Lord, change my heart. You know, Don, I can't save you. No one else can save you. But God can soften your heart and he can save you. But you have to approach him with humility. Cry out to him. He will never turn his back on you. To God, not the glory. Amen.